Hi, I'm Harry Pitts. I'm a co-editor of Futures of Work and a lecturer in work, employment, organisation and public policy at University of Bristol School of Management. This edition of the Futures of Work podcast is brought to you in conjunction with Bristol Festival of Ideas, the Economic and Social Research Council's Think and Futures Festival and the journal Political Quarterly, who earlier this month sponsored an event discussing a recent special issue of the journal on post-capitalism and the politics of work. At the event, I spoke with three speakers who contributed to the special issue. The MP and Shadow Foreign Secretary Lisa Nandy, the author and journalist Paul Mason, and the MP for Dagenham and Raynham, John Crudders. I began by asking John what the motivations for the special issue were, and as Joe Biden's victory in the US presidential election was becoming increasingly clear that evening, what the implications of the debates and discussions featured in the special issue were for the contemporary political lay of the land in the UK and more broadly in the world at large. I suppose the motivations really was to try and diagnose the nature of the crisis because we obviously consumed by a crisis that threatens the foundations of liberal democracy itself um, and approach to the market economy and society naturalized by generations of politicians has triggered a crisis of ethnic precautions. Yet the self-same politicians are least equipped to explain the crisis is they know of no alternative. And that sort of sits behind the turbulence on both the left and right and ushered in new forms of political Trump, Brexit, Corbyn. Symptoms of a deeper crisis, if you want. So that all the three creeds that dominated the last 200 years in terms of conservatism, social democracy, liberalism, there's a sense that history's turned against them and they offer diminishing returns to help navigate the complexities, demands of the modern world. So history's been upended. You have dystopian technological change, platform authoritarianism, possibly the end of work, lack of inclusive growth, accelerating inequalities, facts, rationality and the enlightenment is out, fake news is in, transhumanism on the sort of libertarian right and left with sort of eugenic overtones, domestic exclusion of various persuasions filling vacuums, and the sort of consequent corrosion of international rules-based systems. So new divides are opening up across all Western market economies based around age, education, geography, class, race, etc. And so cumulatively the centre is emptied. So what is the new sort of emerging schemas or narratives or diagnosis or ideologies that can help us interpret the world and build something different? So we've got the sort of nativism, you have the sort of red Toryism of Johnson and May in red wall seats, quite successful. You've got various identity politics on the left and right. You've got the centrism of Macron, Blairism or whatever. You have sort of transhumanism, accelerationism is often called. And you've also got sort of retro authoritarian left. So how does this all play out on the left, which is our real motive? Because for 15 years or more, you could say that the Labour right has literally had nothing to say in response to this crisis, apart from factional attacks on Corbyn within the PLP, no confidence motions, coups, etc., but no renewal. Um, so political renewal arguably has come from the left and not the right of Labour. And that's where you sort of situate the politics of post-capitalism as a response to that crisis that requires serious scrutiny, I think. And Paul's body of work is the most interesting in and around Corbynism. Um, and what we wanted to do in the special issue was to give it an airing and start probing it 
empirical questions around automation on the demand for labor, which will influence future debates around UBI, obviously appropriate in terms of the furlough, which is a sort of proto-UBI in the context of pandemic, questions of an over-reliance, arguably, on a few pages of Marx's Grundrisse, the fragment on the machines, um, which has allows for a very precise reading of Marx and the future of capitalism, political agency, and future utopias, actually. Its take on Marx's labour theory of value, which is much back in the, in the political frame, which I think is much to be welcomed, but that deserves proper debate. And the consequent resetting of the base of the left away from a discernible working class towards a notion of the networked youth, which is really interesting. So the whole literature, I think, has a specific view of historic change. It is very fashionable within the Occupy movement, the post-student politics protests of a decade ago, the anti-globalization movement. It offers a new utopia, um, which has a rich pedigree in terms of the history of the European left, especially in Italy. And it offers genuine intellectual renewal and a return to Marx, all of which I think should be welcomed. But uh, I think what we're trying to do is just start a conversation around it and probe it a bit more in terms of some of the assumptions and theoretical um, building blocks that contained within. So that, I think that's the sort of motivation for the special issue, Harry. Thanks, John. Um, turning to Paul, I mean, your piece sets out your vision of a post-capitalist transition. Can, can you let us know a little bit more about what you see that transition implying politically and, you know, maybe how yeah. that looks in the current climate? <laughs> right. Well, uh, yes, thanks uh, for that. Uh, let me just get, get my earphones right. Um, well, yeah, obviously, um, there's two traditions in, in, in the 20th century left and indeed the 19th century left. One basically says, let's start from where we are and make things better and see where we get. And another one, which is actually older, says, let's imagine the future, uh, forget what it's like now, and actually try and design what the future could be like. Now, the problem uh, is that for about... Uh, well, 200 years. Is that my dog behind me? Yeah, what have you got there? Um, for about 200 years, um, that uto even utopianism, which is the design design the future and, and go for it, has been based on work. Uh, Andre Gort said the left needs to break from utopias based on work and move to utopias based on non-work or leisure or culture. And I work in that tradition, even though I call myself... a basically a marxist i uh, you you could label me if you wanted to accurately label me it's it's that italian word post operaism uh, it's the after work marxism no what is post the post capitalist thesis says it's possible and necessary to move beyond capitalism in this century that is on a on an economy based primarily on on the market and market forces the reason why post-capitalism has become possible it's because of technology technological change information technologies are unlike all other technologies they are exponential um that that and and the, the exponential change they've inaugurated doesn't stop so pentium uh, pentium 5 computer in mid 1990s about three million transistors on a chip the size of your thumb uh on this, my iPhone 11 Pro, there's a chip that has 8 billion transistors uh, on a chip the size of my fingernail. Um, 
it can do five trillion operations a second. Now, what that means is not just that computer technology gets better and better, uh, doubles in its capacity every certain 18 months, but the other technologies, for example, like gene sequencing, uh, are, are in a process of, of exponential change that is happening much faster. Now, on the basis of that, in the book and in the article in PQ, I, I, I all, I've systematized it to four effects. Dramatically falling production costs of real things, automation and the potential rapid automation of work, network effects which create free stuff both in the sphere of information and reality i call it pools of abundance relative abundance and finally the possibility of totally democratized and socialized knowledge so that if i know if i find something out or remedy a defect in a product today it is remedied tomorrow for everybody else on earth now those four things don't create post-capitalism what they create in my schema is a very distorted capitalism because capitalism responds by protecting itself against those tendencies and the four protections against falling prices are monopoly pricing so the fangs the facebook amazon against automation is the creation of the bullshit jobs millions of jobs that really don't need to exist that exist actually to provide people with uh, enough money to have a, a mobile phone and a credit card through which they can be exploited by non-employers. The third thing is, what do you get? What, how do you counteract network effects, i.e. the creation of like free utility? You create companies that rent seek. So companies like Uber are there to stop a free service for ride sharing existing, or indeed public transport. That's the other thing they're going to stop. Finally, what? How do we? How do we stop? Um, how do we stop knowledge being socialized? You, you know, massive imposition of intellectual property laws. So that capitalism is, I see, a kind of very unadaptable capitalism. No, I said post-capitalism is possible and necessary. Why is it necessary to 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 exploit to 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 put it very very quickly and simply because of secular stagnation? Because technology is undermining the basis for capital accumulation. This is not just me. This is Larry Summers, uh, that's, this is plenty of mainstream economists believe the combination of an aging population and technological change is reducing the amount of capital you need for capital investment. And therefore, what would we see? The interest rate over the last 20 years falls from about 8% to sub-zero, and there's only one direction it's going further. That is negative capitalism. To finish, uh, look, in, in a single line, climate change, you know, I don't see capitalism as delivering uh, zero carbon now what's the political outfall of that i work in the labor movement not the green movement uh, and even if i lived in germany i wouldn't live in the green movement because i see the labor movement as the transformatory part of politics but you ask john do i see i mean do i see the subject of history that is the agent of change as being networked youth no i don't i mean my book about 2011 was a description of that emergence what i in my latest book clear bright future and it was written with this specific goal in mind it's to dissociate myself from people who believe what i've just said who nevertheless have an anti-humanist view of history that is that they believe history is a machine that moves irrespective of human willpower and that 
let's just accelerate it this is there in china now by the way accelerate it though it'll hit a moment of a great reset and out of that will come a freer society i don't believe that at all i, I have moved in the direction of humanistic marxism that is i see the whole of humanity as the subject of history everybody who doesn't like things the way they are so what's my dilemma what's my problem it's it's it's, it's summarized in the problem that one very few people in the labor movement and the clue is in the name believe that we can transcend work the labor front bench for very understandable reasons has moved very much in the direction in the last six months of we need to make work better and i don't disagree with that i just don't think it's going to be makeable better in the situation i've described um, i'm not against trying uh, the 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 more obvious problem is i'm not right currently now in the business of trying to impose or sell this program into the labor party because it was obvious from the 2019 election it's not just that the radicalism of old nostalgic social democracy or the kind of stalinist influenced statism of some of the people who were around jeremy it's the fact that also my agenda was not acceptable to the political coalition that we need to create and the, the, the best example of that was brought free broadband Everybody, working class people hated the idea of free broadband. I, I haven't met anybody who thought it was a good idea. I was stunned myself to see it suddenly arise one day in the Labour. I had nothing to do with that. If I had, I'd have said, hold on a minute, there, are, there might be other things. So to finish, my product problem is the same problem as, as the people who wrote the Goethe programme, the, the German social democracy. It's what is urgent and what is strategic. What is urgent now is to, to construct a political alliance that can defeat the authoritarian and radical right. And to construct that political alliance, my current beef and my coming book is all about, I'm prepared to give up quite a lot of my strategic objectives for now. Um, and I can tell you what they are when we get more time, but I will cut out there because I'm eager to hear what Lisa has to say. Thank you very much, Paul. Uh, Lisa, your piece was about how some of this kind of bigger picture thinking um, and the bigger economic and political changes it addresses leaves behind, to some extent, some of Labour's kind of core constituency of voters in, in towns, so outside the kind of uh, big urban centres, and some of the implications for how Labour addresses the challenges ahead electorally. So I was wondering if you could kind of relate some of that bigger thinking that uh, we've already addressed with the kind of nitty-gritty, I guess, of, of, of how, how Labour not only survives, it manages to thrive in, in that context that you address in your piece. Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, I, I don't know if I can contribute much to post-cultural Marxism or whatever <laughs> we're talking about, but I can definitely tell you where the, the sort of piece came from and how it sits within this debate, because it started very much for me with a kind of, you know, somebody who's been the MP for Wigan, not, not very far from where Paul originally hails from over in Lee for the last decade and watching these huge cultural and political divisions growing up um, to the extent that you know for someone who spends half their week in London at work and then the rest of the week at home in Wigan it was like stepping from one world into another with very little um, common ground between them and that has not always been the case and watching those divisions grow up watching these huge sort of political earthquakes that we'd seen in places like Wigan over the last decade whether it had been the falling turnout we saw in the 
um, mid-2000s and then suddenly this huge and dramatic spike in support for UKIP, including in towns like mine where the far right and the BNP, despite repeated attempts, have never been able to get a foothold. Then, of course, we had the independent referendum in Scotland, which are classed as a near miss, um, and then the, um, the Brexit uh, vote uh, a few years later. And just watching the response from the political world, including my own party, it was almost that we took exactly the wrong cues from every major political earthquake that we survived. Mm. And um, my sort of feeling was that to understand how to build the future that Paul talks about and writes about really well, you have to understand, first of all, where you are and how you got there. And so we set up a think tank called Centre for Towns. My friends and I, Will Jennings um, at Southampton University and um, uh, Ian Warren, uh, who's a data analyst, and we... We started from the from the Brexit referendum and the division that had been exposed but not caused by Brexit of this growing gulf between the sort of socially conservative towns and the socially liberal cities. And we started to put together a picture of uh, two, two Englands, as Will called them in his paper, which, which had seen very, very different experiences of globalisation over the last 40 years. Um, in cities largely a story of growing inequality as more and more white collar jobs and investment in infrastructure was piled into the cities uh, whereas in towns outside what you often saw was a picture of 40 years of relative economic decline and what did it mean it meant that as we were stripped in our towns of the good jobs the skilled jobs the jobs that offered a future not the bullshit jobs as Paul just called them. Um, as we were stripped of those jobs and opportunities, we lost our young people and our working age population. Uh, and with the working age population went the spending power that sustained the high streets and the bus networks. Um, and we saw all of those things, the local pubs, fall into disrepair and decline. Things that deeply, deeply matter to people and make up the social fabric. Alongside that, you have a story of an ageing population in towns and a much younger population in cities. The Manchester that I was born into uh, was so much older than the surrounding towns, Wigan, Bury, Bolton, Oldham, because the industry was in those towns and that's where young people flock to. Over the course of my lifetime, that has completely reversed and the picture is completely different. So you have older people now growing old, hundreds of miles away from children and grandchildren, feeling really angry about a settlement that's broken their families apart as well as cost them many of the things that matter. And you have this huge division that then grown up between attitudes on almost every measure, not just the European Union, but human rights, civil rights, immigration, between towns and cities, with one home largely to a socially liberal, younger, university-educated population, and the other to Labour's more traditional working-class coalition, who feel increasingly angry with not just the economic settlement, but the political settlement as well. I was asked recently by Gloria De Piero, who was a colleague of ours now, a journalist, how woke is Wigan? And the truth is it depends on it depends on how old you are. That young people in Wigan have exactly the same attitudes socially uh, on all those issues as young people in London or in Manchester. There are just fewer young people in Wigan, and that's what accounts for the very big fragmentation that we've seen in the electorate. Now, I guess I would just say, given what a momentous day this is, that a large part of the piece that I wrote for Political 
actually was focused on how this is not a UK phenomenon. This is a global phenomenon that has broken apart the left, smashed it to smithereens and its electoral coalition in countries around the world. Before we had Brexit in the UK, we had climate change in Australia, where Anthony Albanese and Penny Wong and friends over there in our sister party have done an enormous amount of work looking at the way in which um, the climate change became the same culture war that broke the left apart over Brexit in Britain, where you had liberal, uh, what Gloria would call woke uh, young people in cities saying rightly that climate change was the great challenge of our age and we had to go further and faster to tackle it. Many uh, older and working age men outside of the cities who relied on the fossil fuel industry, not just for their lives and livelihoods, but mm. for their community infrastructure as well. And we saw the same in France with Le Pen capitalising on the very real discontent outside of major cities that forced Macron in the end to recognise that this is 40 years of malaise that has been risen to the surface in those protests. He said it's been a long time coming, but it's here now. And of course, today of all days, I have to mention the, the United States because the path to victory for Donald Trump in 2016 ran right through what I like to call the Wigan equivalent in the US, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, where workers railed against what they called the arrogant liberal urban elitists who hadn't just presided over decades of decline in manufacturing, but also showed real disrespect and disdain for their lives. So into all of that came the referendum argument and the argument for a second referendum. And the arguments within Labour that Paul's been referring to about whether to abandon the traditional working classes outside of the, the major urban centres in order to um, try to build a new coalition amongst the young urban networked youth. Now, my argument in that piece was that that wasn't just a, a profound misunderstanding of Labour's historic purpose and our moral obligations to people who built our party, but it also defied electoral gravity, that there was no route to 10 Downing Street that didn't run through our socially conservative, older, working-class towns, as well as the cities, and that the great challenge facing Labour was how you bring those things together. It's one of the, you know, I've been wrong about most things in British politics over the last decades, but it gives me no pleasure at all to say that that piece was published just before the general election and turned out to be completely right. Do I take hope? Yes, I do, because I think the people got there before us. I think they've been much misunderstood. I think there is a commonality of views across many major areas, including the economy, but the need for infrastructure and investment in every town, city, village, in every nation and region of the United Kingdom. And um, But most of all, I think there is a shared consensus as well about the need for power in those areas. It's something I don't think the Conservatives, for all their talk of levelling up, have really understood. But there is a shared vision of the future amongst those two very different parts of Labour's electoral coalition that I've just talked about that sees not just more investment, but much more control over their own destinies. And if you look to America, where Joe Biden has managed largely actually to put together some of that coalition, much of the debate at the moment is about how Trump managed to increase the number of people who voted for him after a very, very depressing, shameful few years in America. But actually, Joe Biden has advanced the Democratic cause in those core cities and in those states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, the Rust Belt, the Midwest. 
I think there are lessons for us to learn, lessons of what you must do better, and but also lessons of, of what they have done right in that area. And, you know, I would go so far as to say that the agenda that Biden and Harris have set out is more radical than an agenda that I've seen from the Democratic Party for quite some time. And I would include both Clinton and Obama in that. It's an agenda that is rooted in the idea that if you want to extend democracy overseas, you have to extend democracy at home and give people far more power and control over their own destinies. Can they can they do it with a Republican Senate? I'm not sure. They're going to need. What I do know is that they're going to need friends and allies on the progressive left all over the world, and that is what we're determined to build. Great, thanks, Lisa. And you, you've kind of actually answered already the question I was going to throw back at you uh, on my on my plan about the U.S. election. Um, so I might actually, to give you a breather, move to move to Paul actually next on this. I mean, you've written a piece this week for the for the state New Statesman, um, you know, about the Democrats' performance and what it tells us about you know the future of you know populism of both left and right, and you know. Do you see this as, the, as a decisive moment, the, Biden, the possible Biden presidency and kind of rolling back what appeared to be an escalating future of more authoritarianism, more nationalism, more populism? Um, hold on. I'm afraid, I'm afraid I don't. I mean, I agree with, uh, with Lisa's assessment of Biden uh, in the sense that, you know, he's, he, we, we've now got 12 years after the, the collapse of neoliberal... Um, cohesion you know into in, in 2008 the system blew up it's taken social democracy and liberal democracy 12 years to get to the point of saying you know what let's let's not do any more privatization and um horrific you know uh austerity against our own supporters well that's too slow and in the intervening period i mean i'm doing lots of study at the moment of the far right and to compare where the far right were in 2008 the bmp 2009 a million votes in Britain, and we were scared. 2014, four million for UKIP. Now that's not the BMP; that's a, a right populism. But it's, you know, one of the privileges of being a journalist is you can do things like go undercover on right-wing semi-fascist demos, and when you're on them, they, you, you get a feeling of how pervasive and persuasive this uh, this is. Right now. I think, however, we are at a turning point. And here's where the, what the turning point is. It's an understanding within the left that the, the four of us on this little quadrangle are not enemies, number one. It's also an understanding that what I'm saying to my com comrades on the left, the progressive Democrats, the DSA in America, is your entire strategy is now screwed, I'm afraid. In a way, so is the Democrats. Uh, the idea that you're going to get a, a graduate Stan Greenberg was associated with this the new American majority you know single women lesbians and gays uh, black people Hispanics college graduates will form a demographic majority by the middle of the century and it'll then the, the GOP will be out of power forever no because that Hispanic and black movement to Trump is quite significant it shows you I think that um, we have to win this by ally my, my favorite saying is Hannah Arendt, you know, fascism is an alliance of the elite and the mob. That's what Trumpism was, even though it wasn't fascism. Elite plus mob. Um, the only way we defeated that in history is to ally the center and the left. So the left's got to, got to stop thinking that the enemy is liberalism. 
I wake up every day, as you know, Lisa and John, you do it too, uh, to Twitter telling me that I'm a traitor for supporting Keir Starmer. That's the number one thing. And that because I did so, I am this terrible thing, a liberal. Um, well, I'm not. But even if I was, I don't think liberalism is the worst thing to be when you've got a president trying to override the American Constitution. Because liberalism tells them that they should struggle. So I think the future for the left has to be, and here is, is the most controversial thing that I'm saying at the moment to my left-wing colleagues, is it's an overt emulation of the popular front of the 1930s. We put aside some of what we want, the liberals, Lord Adonis and co, you know, and, and possibly, you know, Ed Davey and the rest, have to put aside some of what they want and decide to defeat electorally this alliance of the right and far right. So we're a long way now from post-capitalism, absolutely. The French Popular Front was a long way from the program of the Communist Party, which created it. Well, that's what we're going to have to do. Um, and I think that if we can create an ethos of collaboration, that's the next stage. You know, to look at what, say, Stacey Abrams has done in, in, in the Georgia and, and Atlanta, the ethos of collaboration between the left would be quite critical sometimes of the Dem Republic of the Democratic uh, establishment in Georgia. That's a, a model we need to, to, to look at. And actually, you're right, Lisa, we've got our own models of it. We will uh, defeat the Tories on some things. Uh, it's the pity in Britain is that liberalism is, is such a tiny, it's a tiny political current, actually, you know, representatively. But you know, if you think of what we, we can and will do with human rights lawyers, with climate um, uh, movements, uh, with Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter here in South London, where I am, was not a very laborist movement. It was quite a, what you might call in class terms, petty bourgeois movement, because so many young black people don't actually operate in the workforce. They they operate in, in, in small business. So it's the seeking of alliances across classes. And classes are quite weak anyway, that you have to build a cross-class alliance whenever you build a social movement. Thanks, Paul. Uh, really useful and provocative uh, thoughts there. Um, John, I mean, you've got experience of defeating, fighting and defeat, defeating the far right in your constituency in the past when the BNP first kind of started rearing its head electorally uh, in the last decade. Um, I mean, what what do you, we've got a question in the in the in the comments um, from Lisa, not this Lisa, another Lisa, um, about electoral reform. You know, in terms of yeah. what Paul's talking about, in terms of forming cross-class alliances, you know, in terms of, you know, is that still a necessary step, do you think, electoral reform? Well, I do, I do but I'm, I'm, I'm a long-standing supporter of it, and the notion of the progressive alliance and the culture of pluralism that goes along with it, which is precisely what Paul was saying in terms of the agility needed to try and build some sort of transcending coalition that can, that can defeat the the scale of the challenge that we face i'll go back to the american thing for a, for a moment because it's sort of triggered by what paul was saying i mean there's a danger obviously that trump lost but he'll spend years sort of hunting or stalking biden escalating anger and rage festering notions of grievance and injustice or he's in jail you know but he, he could well be spending years doing that ramping up an, a, an alternative media empire and a sort of cycle of division um, and very little renewal. Meanwhile, 
the danger is that Biden can be trapped by McConnell and the, the, and the operation of the Senate and then tensions within the Democratic coalition escalate because of the sort of sense of inertia around the presidency. That is one sort of scenario. And the other side of that is, which, which is focused on Paul's point about the far right, is the notion of accelerationism on the right and the notion of violent uprising revolution, the boogaloo politics of the militia movement. I, I, I'll go back. Um, 25 years ago, we had Ruby Ridge, Randy Weaver. We had Waco, what was it, 92, 93. You had Oklahoma at 95. These were absolutely seen as fringe militia movements. I was talking, actually, I was talking to Lisa about this earlier in the week. I, I, there were some statistics from the Southern Poverty Law Center that said that some 20 million Americans share the value set of this white power movement now. Now, that is not, that is very different from the early 90s. And look at the domestic terrorism that was percolating through the American fringe right um, in the mid 90s. Now, Mario, which threatens the very fabric of the republic here, you know, and so I'm not awash with optimism in terms of the future shakedown of the American political system. Um, having said that, I do think Biden created quite a wide, deep coalition. We'll have to see about how resilient it is if this worst case scenario of this militant acceleration on the right proves to be as dangerous as it could well be. And that is very different from the BNP in Dagenham or Wigan or whatever. And seeing it at front of stand a few years ago, that was pretty frightening. But this is really quite terrifying and demands a moral response on the progressive fight where people, people put down their disagreements and actually forge um, resilient coalitions because of the categorical imperative of what's coming down the road. Great. Thanks, John. Um, Turning back to Paul for a second, because we've had a question about um, about the universal basic income, and I mean that kind of that's provided as a kind of catch-all policy solution to a lot of yeah. woes that we're currently facing, whether it's political disenfranchisement or you know or the coronavirus, which I guess we should probably consider in our yeah. thinking about this. You know, how do you think COVID nineteen, the state intervention in paying people's wages that we've seen on an unprecedented scale from the Tory government? How how does that play into some of the stuff you're talking about in your work on you know post work post capitalist transitions? Okay. I mean, is there something coming down the line produced by this crisis? Right, I think uh, the UBI for me is a transitional measure. I support it in in that range, okay, because I see it as a way of uh, subsidising and facilitating the rapid automation of society. Because what I want to do is to reduce the number of of necessary hours worked by people on this planet um, and I, I think so so that's my view of it no the thing is that for people like me in normal times what we're asking for is trials of it and modeling of it because we don't know whether it will work and we don't know exactly how it will work in the end it'll have to be phased out because there won't be a big enough private sector to support the taxation needed you'll have to move to a non-capitalist economy um, so that's what it says in my book and what all I want are trials like the Finnish trial, which went well. Um, there's the, and one of the things I'd, I'd want for the social democratic tradition to do is to maintain on the agenda the idea. Welsh Labour, for example, moved in the Senate a few, a few weeks ago, the idea of a trial in Wales. Good. But right now, with COVID, 
there i actually think it is an idea that would be very useful as an interim temporary measure and here's why you've seen that sunak has to keep coming with these ad hoc extensions to the furlough scheme what's wrong with the furlough scheme is that there's no permanence to it it's like a sort of it's a, it's like a it's like someone constantly falling off their bike trying to move the handlebars to try and avoid falling off it's very heavily focused on people in stable employment and we know there are five million self-employed people that includes some of the poorest and most uh precarious people why did they get nothing let's just remember one thing because our heroic comrades in unite and unison and gmb fought very hard for employed workers to get 80 percent furlough um and i support that that's a power that's a reminder if you're a self-employed person of what happens to you you get shafted by capitalism but um we this furlough scheme won't hold it might hold till march but what if we don't get a vaccine what if the the virus mutates what if you know lots of things can go wrong you get secondary economic effects so banks fall over mns goes bust whatever there's something we don't expect at that point i would argue there's not that much difference between what economists call helicopter money which is what trump did which gave everybody a check for two thousand dollars and an, an emergency temporary ubi which simply says don't just ab ab abandon the universal credit and it's and it's labyrinthine structures and just well not abandon pay it but just reverse pay everybody a certain amount of money through their tax bill uh for a bit of time now in advocating that it's easy it's universal and it's reversible the point is it, you're not then giving over to people like me radicals the the idea that we're going to you know have a permanent ubi but what i would say at that, that point is let's as we do it measure the externalities let's measure does mental health improve as people realize they'll never be poor they'll never be hungry they'll never lose their home because they can't pay the rent would do, do we gain intangible benefits and can we capture them and you know what makes me optimistic is that the treasury realizing it's no spent something like going to spend something like half a trillion paying people not to work it's quite a lot of money is now asking itself are there other ways we can measure the benefits of public spending and i think that um if we can do that then the agenda of the ultra radicals you know the kind of ubi crowd and the agenda of the treasury and the helicopter money <clears throat> comes quite close towards a single solution which is temporary limited and measured ubi interesting stuff i mean lisa do, do you see, i mean on the i mean i think with your kind of foreign affairs brief hat on um COVID-19 is reshaping the relationship between state and society the world over, obviously. And I mean, one thing that in in the introduction that John and I wrote to the special issue, we were writing about the threat of digital authoritarianism unleashed by COVID when our government in the UK, at least, is clearly not even capable of organising an efficient test and trace system, let alone anything more dystopian than that. But on the global scale, it's been felt differently in different places. I mean, do you, do you see COVID-19 as a kind of as an intensification of some of the same tendencies that we've seen playing out on the world stage over the past few years? Um, yeah, I suppose in, in some ways. I mean, I guess I think we're at a moment what, that we, has been a long time coming, but which COVID has intensified, where 
the world is going to face a very stark choice about whether we choose to use this moment to break apart or pull together. And at the moment, I am a bit of a nat natural optimist, despite the last decade. But I, um, I suppose I probably share Paul on his pessimistic couch on, on some of this, because I think at the moment the trend, uh, the direction of travel is very much about breaking apart at the moment we most need solidarity the director general of the world health organization says the greatest threat that we now face is not the virus itself it's the lack of solidarity globally and locally now what's interesting to me about that quote is not just he doesn't just focus on the global you know the need to make sure that when we come up with a plan for the vaccine we're not pitting the people of bolton against the people of bangladesh but we're recognizing that unless we defeat covid everywhere we don't defeat it anywhere he all of us i think on the left recognize that but what is interesting to me is the recognition that divisions within countries are probably one of the greatest challenges to global solidarity that we face and it's why when i addressed labor connected which was our sort of online version of conference this year a couple of months ago i said that the you know, the, the job of this generation of Labour politicians is to turn the page on the old era. There are lessons to be learned from Labour's history, but too often what we do on the left is just try to resurrect old ideas um, to move us forwards. And actually, building solidarity in an age of insecurity is the great challenge that we've got. That has to start at home before you win permission to build that solidarity overseas. And that's kind of... You know, this debate about UBI plays right into the middle of that. I guess I would just throw up a few thoughts about whether UBI actually does what you want it to do. The first is, you know, this, this conversation that John was having, this sort of discussion John was sort of starting about, about the, you know, the, the right-wing militia and the sort of long tail of that and the way in which that's been allowed to take hold more generally I actually, I have a slightly different take on that. Maybe it's not a different take. Maybe it's just a misunderstanding of John's position. But, you know, I think one of the mistakes that the left has made too often is to associate people who vote for or support things that we believe are beyond the pale with wholehearted uh, identification with that political ideology. So we did it with Brexit. I think we did it very much with uh, UKIP as well. And yeah, I was really struck listening to a Republican commentator on a political show I was on on Wednesday when she said, you know, one of the reasons that she didn't believe that Biden is doing, has seen this blue wave that was widely predicted is because there is a lesson for sections of the left that you can't just call people racists for voting for somebody you don't like and then expect them to come and vote for you. For what it's worth, I think there is far more common ground with a progressive agenda than the current electoral maths playing out around the world would have and in the UK would have you believe. And it's our job to try and sort of look beyond that and get it right. And it sort of it takes me to a bit of a concern with what Paul was saying. I mean I am a liberal, I'm a socialist liberal green, I guess. And um, you know, many many times that's put me in a very different place to my own constituents on some of the major questions of the day, at least some of my older constituents. But I also have a respect for that strand of conservatism that I think offers us a path to the future. When I was doing the shadow energy and climate job for Jeremy, 
one of the things that really depressed me was the way in which we'd cut conservatives out of the picture when it came to being allies in climate change and actually social conservatives are feel more strongly about the environment and climate change than social liberals in many respects i get more letters in wigan about the environment than i do about any other issue and there are you know national trust members should be a a huge coalition for us in the fight against climate change and for a greener uh, world so there is an alliance to be built there that isn't just an alliance um, of the left and liberals against fascism and and rising xenophobia it's an alliance that I think has to take us much broader than that now that is challenging because the last four years on the left I think have been the story of people who can't even build a tent broad enough to contain ourselves in it but perhaps this is the moment when we might start to turn the page on that sort of politics and perhaps america does too and perhaps we can build a global network that supports us to to move that forward great thank you very much lisa um just to close because we're we're we're, we're nearing the end of our uh, our hour i know we started a little later so we, we might run over a few minutes but i just wanted to we've touched upon it uh, throughout the discussion but the role of the Labour Party in this but um, starting with John I just wanted a few closing thoughts on what the meaning of under new management which is this you know repeated refrain that we hear around Starmer leadership you know what does this mean for how Labour address these kind of these big global technological challenges that are confronting us uh, in the future today um, what well, I think you have to say the jury's out at the moment in terms of how they're going to do it. I mean, quite rightly, I think he said in an Observer interview a couple of weeks ago that he saw, Keir Starmer saw it as three phases, re-establishing trust, establishing a vision, and then developing policy as a sort of triptych, a political triptych. That sort of makes sense to me. And obviously in the middle of a epic COVID crisis, you can't achieve the vision thing when you're sort of trying to re-establish trust with the electorate introduce yourself in the middle of a uh, a tiny virus detonating the planet so it's not it's not the nine environment to try and start that off but i like the sort of method that he's trying to develop if that's the way he's going to do it my problem is um if you see the the evolution of new labor for example was a 20-year project to gain and retain power that fed off developments of the euro communist movement the labor coordinating committee it had a tributaries towards 1997 that were 20 years developing in opposition nearly 20 years my fear is the intellectual resources that Keir has at hand the 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 populating the repopulating a, a, a left politics a reimagination of how we can do a, a sort of remoralizing of the left away from the sort of technocratic managerialism that has been so persuasive over the last 20 years it's a really tough challenge um but it's all because of the scale of the challenge and the imperative to achieve it everyone has to get involved to build something that can be best equipped to take on the the forces that we're against um i think it's not impossible it's just going to be very difficult um and the question is have we got the intellectual capacity to reimagine a future for social democracy in a radical sense that's why actually that's why this debate around post-capitalism is interesting because it is big it works with big ideas um it's not a sort of small target politics you know what i mean it's big it's sort of passionate 
and it has real intellectual death in terms of the resources it draws on. That's why it needs to be tested and argued around. But if it, that's commensurate with the scale of the challenge, as I mean, rather than some of their stuff that's dominated Labour over the last 25 years. Thanks, John. Paul, do you want to come in on that? I think that uh, the task of Labour in the next 10 years is to get into power and to, if you can get a two-term government for lasting 10 years, to to try and rapidly decarbonise Britain in that 10 years in a consensual way. That is the task given by history. You know, it, 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 you can, if you've got any intergenerational solidarity, that's what you need to do. Now, I agree with Lisa that we're going to have to, you know, we, the Green New Deal and all the stuff that Becky did was brilliant, but it can't be a shibboleth. In particular, because I also agree with you that there could be potentially strong support for an environmental-based uh, rapid transition uh, among exactly those groups of social conservative, not just old people, but young people, that we could assemble a real, you know, social coalition around that. And that is what I think we have to do. And, you know, so... so um, when you choose to do one thing, it means that there are some other things you can't do. And I think that I share John's uh, frustration, actually, with uh, Keir, in a way, has ended up where John McDonnell and, 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 and Jeremy Corbyn were. And I've told them both lets, lets of them this to their face. Politicians don't know what they don't know. That's their problem. Because they don't live in a world of, of, of ideas. You do, John and, and, and Lisa. But in general, you haven't got time to live in a world of ideas. So if somebody say, comes up to you and says, what the classic conversation is, what should we be doing about X, like UBI? And you say, well, what I've just said. But then you say, by the way, there's something you don't know. Did you realize that there's what you just said, John, there's 20 million people in America who believe fascist ideas. Did you realize that the Davos agenda Klaus Schwab's The Great Reset, which I would see as a kind of soft liberal reform program, is now the subject of its very own right-wing conspiracy theory. So that people say the UBI and circular economy and, and decarbonization are a plot by the global Jewish left, to, you know, and then you can fill the rest in. And, and when you say that to politicians, they say, no, I actually didn't know that. And then you say, well, why do you think your people in your constituency are going on about QAnon? Don't you, aren't you interested in that? So look, what I think the point is here, what we're doing here, courtesy of the Bristol Festival Ideas, is what should be going on inside Labour. It's we need to create a place where challenge can come to politicians at that intellectual level. And when the strategy emerges, where, and I, yeah, that's where we are, reestablish trust, form a project, execute some policies. When that emerges, you've got to put it to the test. And I can tell you from within Corbynism, um, I tried to put it to the test, and every, and, and, and every challenge was unwelcome, and that's why that's not because they didn't listen to me, because they didn't listen to anybody in the end, except the people they wanted to listen to. Or if you look at the, the people who chipped off and fell away from Jeremy's team, not just the ones like you, Lisa, who, who resigned, but quite loyal people who just by the end of it said, well, if you're not listening, you know, let's not do that again. What the worst thing would be is if we go in because we've got a strong leader, we're very competent, that they end up thinking, oh, we, we know what to do now. Um, I don't think they do. And the absence of policy, what's it What's it leading to? The, I'll finish here. What it leads to, as long as you haven't got a vision, the fascists have got a utopia. And Lisa and John, it's in every other pub, every corner pub in both your constituencies. You could walk in if those pubs were open and you'd hear what that utopia was. 
and we can have an argument about it. But if we haven't got our own utopia, all we've got is manager, you know, managing voters. Um, so that is, in a way, why I think Biden didn't do the breakthrough, because that. The, the left has a different utopia from the one of the liberal centre in America, and obviously the the kind of social conservative middle class has a, an opposite utopia. So, I just have a plea for for a level of discussion. And you, Harry, in your work have been doing this as well. A level of discussion that is not all about how do we win and what are our policies. Thank you, Paul. Um, Finally, to Lisa, have you got any closing thoughts for us um, on those issues that John and Paul have raised? And it feels like a, a lot of pressure, because if I don't have anything <laughs> to say about Labour being under new management, then I've probably answered John's question and the jury is no longer out. Um, I guess I, I would just say this is that I think there are a lot of lessons from our time in government and, uh, you know, not to reopen factional wars about Iraq or, God help us, tuition fees, but the... One of the great lessons for me of those 13 years was that um, the energy co-op that is co-owned and run by hundreds of local people survives when you leave office, while the sure start that is conceived of, funded from and executed from Whitehall just doesn't. And if there is a lesson, I think it's that power has to lie in far greater hands. And in some ways that, that, that trickles into every bit corner of this debate that we've been having over the last few uh, over the last hour, especially around, you know, how do you take on some of those trends, populism, fascism that are uh, much more prevalent now than they were, they have been at any point in my lifetime. I think the answer is that you have to take people with you. But in order to take people with you, you have to have a reset, really. And the biggest challenge for me in Labour is not about policy. We, we're obsessed with policy in the Labour Party, but it's about culture. And it's about building a culture in which we understand that we have something uh, to learn from every uh, tradition, every political tradition, that we have something to learn from every part of the country. That's how you build a broader coalition. It's how you bring people with you, but it's also how you become not just far more relevant to people's lives. I was, you know, not to upset Paul, but you know, but is not broadband, frankly, when you're in when you're in Lee, which is where he hails from. But it's also how you become much more radical, and you will Fine. find you support for radical models of public ownership in places like oh, me. Not having those for a very, very long time. I think just to sort of bring it back to the kind of start of this, really, is that we we spent a lot of time kind of debating uh, the past in Labour. I think over the last few years, it's felt at times like. We had a sort of argument going about whether the 1970s or the 1990s should be allowed to dominate for the next 20 years. I do feel quite optimistic, actually, about the amount of ideas around Labour. I totally take Paul's point about the fact that when you're on the front line in politics, it's hard uh, to, to do this. But actually, that's the whole point about culture, is that you have to become much more porous. And I, I really welcome the fact, actually, that Keir has started with culture. Um, you know, you could see that from, from day one when he appointed a very broad shadow cabinet of people who'd served under Corbyn, under Ed Miliband, uh, previously when we were in government, as well as newer MPs as well. But that is starting to trickle out to the first event that he did was uh, called Keir event was in Bury with mm. not just 
party members but with the public it's a determination to go out and meet people on their territory not just ours and to establish a different culture and that's why I feel optimistic we're not there yet we wouldn't expect to be there yet we shouldn't be there yet like John said this is a big challenge it took 20 years of really hard intellectual heavy lifting last time to build us an agenda that took us into government and took us through several terms of government but you have to start with the culture in my view I think that's 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 right and I think Biden gets that too whether he's able to do it now with a very divided country with you know not having control of the Senate I don't know but I, I think he does understand that and you know there's a, a Nina Simone song that has become a bit of a theme of this campaign there's a new world coming and I think you know to echo John's jury's out comments is, is a new world coming in the end that is largely up to us Thanks to Lisa Nandy, Paul Mason and John Crudis for their participation in this Bristol Festival of Ideas event sponsored by the journal Political Quarterly. The special issue on post-capitalism and the politics of work is available from the Political Quarterly website at www.politicalquarterly.org.uk.